Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Kei te whakaronga mai kwe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tātou au whānui. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ and I'm Alison Balance. Volcanoes are in the headlines. Fuego Volcano in Guatemala. Kilauea Volcano on Hawaii's Big Island. But despite the loss of lives and the large economic disruption, these two eruptions are actually small in the scale of things. Volcanic eruptions are rated on the logarithmic Volcanic Explosivity Index, going from zero, a very gentle eruption, to eight, which is known as a mega-colossal eruption. So far this century, the largest eruption on land has been a five. That was the 2011 eruption in Chile, which closed airspace around the southern hemisphere. But actually, there's been a second, more recent eruption that was also a five. It's the largest deep ocean eruption ever documented, and it happened right under our noses, in the New Zealand region. And if you're scratching your head right now going, what? Where? Then you're not alone. That's because this eruption happened underwater, halfway between here and Tonga. It was the Havre volcano on the Kermadec Arc, and it blew up in mid-July 2012. One of the geologists who's been studying the Havre eruption is James White from the University of Otago. He has a particular interest in underwater or submarine volcanoes. Now and for much of Earth's history, the majority of, of the Earth's surface has been underwater, and we know that, that a volcano erupting underwater faces a very different environment from those erupting on land, and I'm just really curious. We know also that eruptions on land that inter- interact with groundwater can behave very differently from those that don't. And it's all part of the same process of magma encountering water and doing various things. Sometimes it just hisses and makes a little bit of steam, and sometimes it blows up. Sometimes it does something in between. And although we have various models to explain different bits of those processes, we still lack any decent overarching model. And that's important for us, not, not just underwater. In fact, it's probably least important there in terms of hazards. But it's much more important for places like Auckland. is sort of my type example here where some eruptions are very explosive because of particular ways of interacting with groundwater or shallow seawater, and others just produce lava flows. could sit there and watch them in your beach chair. It would be important to know, if we can, what controls that difference before setting up your beach chair. Because we don't get to see submarine or subaqueous volcanoes erupting, studying them is like investigating a geological cold case, finding and then piecing together a few clues to work out what might have happened. When we have a, an eruption on land, we can see what's happened in many cases, but for prehistoric eruptions, we, we can't see. And so what we do with a new eruption on land is we go and look both at the record of the observations during the eruption, but also at all of the particles that came out of it, and we try to use properties of those particles and those deposits to match back to the phenomenon that we can see. And then... When we look at the deposits of an ancient eruption, we can reconstruct the activities that were going on. That's what we want to do here, too. The challenge is that nobody's ever observed an eruption like this, anything like this scale, um, underwater. 
and probably never will. Probably while it was going on, there would have been too much ash in the water to see far enough to get an idea. So really the deposit is all that we have to work with. And this is the first time there's been a large subaqueous eruption where people knew exactly where it took place and were able to go there and sample it. Eruptions that take place completely underwater, there's been two that have been observed uh, by people in submarines that were studying the volcano and more or less happened to be there when, when it was erupting. And these were, these were small. The eruptions would fit in this room. And there's this one. In terms of submarine eruptions, this is the best we've ever had. This is PhD student Aaron Murch. In ancient deposits, we can look at what's left on the seafloor. And then there are a few observations of eruptions of the surface where you just see pumice coming up to the surface and a sort of a vapor bloom forming, but no seafloor observation. So this is beyond anything else that we've got. It was a pretty big eruption, and the other interesting thing is that we didn't know about it until long afterwards. So if we'd had an eruption this size on land, everybody would have known about it instantly. But instead, one of the products of the eruption was a, a raft of floating pumice. This floating rock on top of the ocean was the, the main signal to the rest of the world that, that something had taken place. How big was that raft? That raft started off about 400 square kilometers and was probably a couple of meters thick. And that formed between two satellite images, so sometime within 24 hours. If there was a similar-sized volcano on land, what might a comparable one be? Purely in terms of the amount of material that was erupted, the uh, 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens is comparable. The Mount St. Helens eruption was a large explosive eruption which produced a lot of ash and pumice. The giant raft of pumice produced by the Havre volcano was widely reported at the time. We featured it here on Our Changing World, with award-winning science communicator Rebecca Priestley reporting from a Navy boat which diverted to collect some of the floating pumice. Three months after the eruption in October 2012, the Niwa research boat Tangaroa scanned the volcano, parts of which are nearly a kilometre underwater. This resulted in an initial rough map of what it looked like post-eruption. Then in 2015, an international expedition returned to the volcano to collect rock samples and make a much more detailed map of the volcano. This map was made by a, a, a group from the US, from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, running what's called an autonomous underwater mapping vehicle, so an, an AUV. And what it does is it goes down on a remote-controlled path and flies around on its own about 100 metres off the seafloor and collects very high-resolution sonar data and then periodically comes back to the surface and downloads all that data. And it spent 12 days doing this, 12 entire days. So you had a very rough map before, now you've got a really beautifully, finely detailed map. Exactly. We can see the shape of each individual lava flow. We can see the small-scale detail telling us the directions that they were flowing. Uh, we can see how they've spread out across the floor of the caldera. On the map, you can see these sort of dimples around the, the caldera. Uh, and these are actually sort of a couple meter size blocks that you can actually see. So resolution, an order of magnitude above anything that we've had for a volcano like this before. Both of the main products of this eruption are unusual for submarine eruption, for how we've thought about submarine eruptions. So the large amount of very fine ash is, was unexpected. And the other thing that we weren't expecting was to find the entire seafloor littered with these pumices that 
didn't float and instead sank back to the seafloor. And these things are about the size of, an, of a small SUV, most of them. And there's millions of these things. So this eruption produced a pumice raft, and there was also a vapor plume going into the atmosphere that was spotted at the same time. And so that indicates we're transferring enough heat to the ocean surface to make that vapor plume, which extended at least 70 kilometers. And we brought enough material to make this big pumice raft. But underwater, stuff that we wouldn't have known about if we didn't go on this dive, we were depositing these millions of car-sized pumice fragments. And this fairly even blanket of very fine ash that extends well beyond the area that we studied. I mentioned earlier that it takes energy to make fine ash, and so normally we would look at a lot of fine ash like that and say, this is a very explosive eruption. If we focus only on the large pumice in the pumice raft, it's possible to develop an entirely satisfactory explanation for those two things that doesn't involve ash at all, and the ash could be an entirely separate event. So this is where we are now on sort of trying to decide exactly what went on here. James and Aaron are part of an international team of geologists working on the complicated Havre eruption. One of their big questions is, how energetically explosive was that 2012 eruption? As well as mapping the volcano, the 2015 expedition was able to collect samples of the pumice covering the sea floor, including one of the larger lumps. And Aaron has been using small bits of that pumice to find out more about the big question of how the ash was produced. This is actually a piece of the giant pumice that we well, was brought up to the surface as a whole. So pumice, tell me a little bit about pumice. Uh, so pumice is basically a volcanic rock in which gases come out of the rock and formed bubbles. Uh, and so it's sort of, it's a foam of rock. Then you've got another piece over there which doesn't look the same yes yeah so this is heavier not not maybe as heavy as you might expect of rock uh, but so this is where we've we've taken samples from from this eruption uh remelted them in the lab and then simulated an eruption to produce ash and compare the laboratory produced ash with the natural ash to see if we can isolate the processes which are actually sort of generating the ash that was erupted so talk me through how, what temperature you have to take it through and how you make it basically erupt again. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so this was originally crushed up into granules and then just put into a, a sort of circular kiln. And then this was heated up to about 1,200 Kelvin. Which is what in Celsius? So that would be around 900 degrees Celsius. That gives you what, then liquid rock? It's sort of liquid rock. On, on the top of this, if you look at it in the right light, you can see little circles. So the, the circles are where, when it was being melted in the crucible, you could poke it with something, and it, would, it wouldn't flow like a normal rocket. It's, it's very, very sticky. Like an old toothpaste or something. And so this is something that happened also later in, later in the eruption at St. Helens. It pushed up what they call a spine or a dome of rock, or it's what made Mount Tarawera the shape that it is. It's a very viscous, sticky lava that just sort of piles up on the surface. So once you'd made it that thick, sticky, lava-like substance in the lab, then what did you do with it? So the objective of that was then to test how water would interact with the, the magma. In the experiment, water would be poured on top of the, the melt, and then a 
sort of gas would be injected from below and the the melt and water mixture would interact and then be thrown out of the crucible, generating ash as it did. And, and what does that ash tell you? One of the things we think about typically in, in geology is um, if we have a sand or a dust or something, we know that bigger particles take more energy to move than small particles. But when you're breaking up magma, the opposite is sort of sort of true. If, if you want to make a million little particles rather than two big ones, it takes more energy. So knowing the size of all the particles tells us something about the amount of energy that had to be expended to break the magma into that many different small particles. And one of the results of Aaron's work was to uh, document that a lot of this ash was extremely tiny particles, 20 to 30 microns, many, many of them smaller than that still. So when, when collecting it with a, a scoop on the seafloor by the remote submarine uh, called Jason, um, this stuff would leave scrapes behind like you'd been dragging your fingers through modeling clay. So that's one sort of information. And the other sort of information is to look at the actual shapes of the particles. So if you, if you break apart a magma that's very fluid, like, like at Hawaii or something, often you get long stringy particles that have been pulled apart as they're being torn from the magma or flying through the air. Uh, whereas if you have a, a more explosive eruption, often you'll be able to break that same material into small angular particles. So silly putty is one of these substances is a bit, a bit like magma. Um, if you pull it slowly, it stretches and you can make a long fluidal shape or you can break it quickly, same material, um, but you've exceeded its, its ability to deform in an elastic manner and instead it just breaks. Volcanic magma is the same, same thing and so we can look at the mix between stretched out fragments and broken fragments and that gives us some additional information about the expenditure of energy necessary to make that, that population of particles and also the rate. So, so just like silly putty, if we, can, if, the, if we can allow time for the ash to get stretched out, then we can get a long, strung-out shape, relatively long, given that these are only 30 microns. One of the unusual things we found in the, the Harvard eruption was these, these hair-like particles and other ones which we've called fluidal. Uh, so despite this magma, like in the remelting experiments, being very sticky, uh, a lot of the ash grains uh, at the Harvard eruption have these very sort of fluidal shapes which seem to suggest that they were almost deforming like a quite a fluid liquid, like a raindrop as it, as it comes through the, the atmosphere. It deforms into the, that characteristic shape. But in the case of the, the ash, it's obviously been sort of erupted out at quite high velocities uh, so this is quite unusual and it's not really been documented in other eruptions it's quite an exciting result of the the ash of the the Havre eruption so some of what happens when a volcano erupts is in a sense chemical because it depends on the particular composition of the magma coming up and some of it's physical that's right the chemical part is sort of baked in before the eruption so so this was rhyolite, it was always going to be rhyolite, so, so nothing was going to change that. The fact that it came out 900 meters underwater rather than at the surface means that it was under higher pressure. So that's just the consequence of having a whole lot of water sitting on top that's of it. That's right. Or, or, you know, it could be on Venus in just a heavier atmosphere. So it's, it's the consequence of a higher pressure. But the other 
fact, exactly as you say, is that it was water. It's the specific thing that raises the pressure. So water does other things. It quenches magma more quickly. It can cause thermal shock that will cause magma to break apart. And so we're, these are some of the effects we're trying to, to tease out of the information from the fragments. What was water's role in an eruption underwater? We know it wasn't everything because the pumice already had gas. That's not related to the water that it erupted into. That's related to the chemistry, uh, specifically the volatile content before eruption. But there are many other parts of the eruption that will be intimately related to this eruption in water. The pressure, which has an effect on the magma's ability to flow, um, but, but also very much the, the thermal and physical effects of erupting into water rather than air. So what, one of the key things about the non-explosive model for the pumice the large pumice on the seafloor and the pumice in the raft, is that if you have something with the density of this piece of pumice sitting underwater, it's going to float, right? That means you don't need an explosive eruption. You can just erupt it into the water and it's just going to float away. Subarily, if we see a big piece of pumice like that that's been carried three kilometers away, we know something had to throw it through the air, but here it doesn't. It could have just floated. Thanks, James. That was James White from the University of Otago, and we also heard from PhD student Aaron Murch. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 14th of June 2018. Our webpage is rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld, and it's chock-a-full of audio, features and useful links. You can also sign up for our weekly email newsletter there, We are available as a podcast in all the usual places. And if you've got a moment to rate and review us on your favourite podcast app, then please and thank you. In case you happen to be as big a fan of football as you are of science, you might be interested in the new RNZ podcast series, Squeaky Bum Time, which is running for the next few weeks to give you a Kiwi spin on the Football World Cup. We are RNZ Science on Facebook and Twitter. Do stay in touch. Well done for listening all the way through, but it's now time for me to say goodbye. Kakite Ano. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.